All right. Welcome to another special episode of Sokka's Is That. So we have someone who I revere in this space uh, on the show today. I'm very happy to introduce Farhan Lalji. He is the chief value adder at LTV Capital. I'm going to go with that title because I think it's unique. Uh, welcome to the show, Farhan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So why don't we deep dive into a bit about your background? So you're an MD at Anthemis. You've decided to start your own thing. But how did you get into VC in the first place? Yeah, I mean, venture is a really challenging industry to get into. Um, I always kind of saw myself more as an entrepreneur than as an investor. Uh, but after having built a bunch of companies in a variety of different spaces, um, I decided to, to give it a shot. Uh, my career you know, has been really a series of learnings. So initially as a software developer, then as a product manager, then spending some time at Yahoo uh, post-business school. Uh, and then I built a bunch of companies. And really, I think that is a great way to build a good kind of venture career is by actually having built companies. So as a founder, as a COO, as an executive in a number of grow, high, grow, high growth startups, um, you know, I found that I actually could empathize um, with entrepreneurs and had really kind of done well at actually building companies. And that's what kind of landed me at Anthemis. So Anthemis were investors in the last company that I helped to build called Peer Index. We exited that business quite a few years ago now. And having gone through an earnout, having worked with the acquiring company, you know, it was a big company. And so had realized that that wasn't where I wanted to be and started kind of exploring opportunities. And venture was one that felt like a good one. You know, I could empathize with, with entrepreneurs. I could see what entrepreneurs maybe needed to do or, or help guide entrepreneurs. And that's really what Anthemis saw when, when I was offered the role uh, initially as a principal and then eventually over time as a managing director at Anthemis Group. Uh, I got to learn with a small fund. And I think that's key as well. You know, I think there are, there are the career paths where you can kind of stay in venture over your career. But I think the path that I ended up on kind of gave me a lot more learning in a shorter amount of time. So I ended up running my own pre-seed fund within Anthemis in the venture building space in FinTech for a number of years. And that really gave me a good insight into to what it took to, to be a good venture investor. And I'm trying to take that learning uh, and build my own firm as a result of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of had a similar path, not exactly like yours, but I was an operator at a startup, high growth, kind of learned what it is to build a business before you invest in a business. Somehow, I feel like you can't do one really well without having the former experience. But sometimes you see people that have sort of the traditional consulting, private equity, you know, they go that route and they end up in the venture space. What do you think is the difference between the two and do you have a preference or are there any pros and cons of one over the other? Because I'm biased. I think it's better to have been an operator, built a business and become a VC. Um, but what are your thoughts? So there's definitely pros and cons to both career trajectories and both um, ways into venture. I would think like from an operator perspective, you know, seeing a company grow does give you that insight and makes you quite you know, empathetic towards the founder's journey. Uh, and empathy is you know, a great skill to have. But I think from a private equity consulting, even investment banking perspective, you know, I think at growth, when you're dealing with M&A opportunities, when you're dealing with uh, large scale contracts, when you're thinking of going from like 
let's say a thousand employees onwards, right? To a number of thousands of employees, or even let's say a hundred employees to 500 employees, right? There are certain skills that, you know, from a career in uh, management consulting or investment banking uh, or private equity that you bring to the table that early stage operators might not actually have. Uh, I also think managing a portfolio, right? When you think about an operator's role, it tends to be having a singular focus, right? You're working in in one instance, building a company. Whereas I think that was kind of the thing that I really struggled with is kind of moving from that operator focused on one company, one venture into now kind of managing a portfolio. And towards the end of my tenure at, at Anthemis, I was working on, you know, eight companies, right? With six where I had an active board position. And attributing time and trying to figure out how much time and attention to give to one company over another, that's a really kind of difficult task for somebody who's come in as an operator with that solo focus. Now, don't get me wrong. I like my career path. I think having been an operator, having been a founder, you know, kind of leads me to, to a good place when I am on the other side of the table. And I think a lot of the founders that I back um, would say that they had a good experience of, of working with me because of that. But at the same time, I do kind of realize that I've got a bunch of gaps. You know, my my best performing company just raised uh, a quite a chunky Series A uh, towards the end of last year, and they brought on some heavy hitting investors. And I could tell that I was, you know, like I, I was bringing a different skill set to what these individuals were bringing. And that was, to be honest, like that was part of my reason of of feeling comfortable and moving on from Anthemis as well, is that. I knew that the companies I had invested in for the for the most part were in good stead. They had good founders, they had good investors, they had built up product, they had gotten some good traction. In most cases, I I had kind of served my purpose as getting them from zero to one and even from one to let's say half the way to n, right? And now they're bringing in other investors in order to get them from from one to n uh in a in a really serious way. I love the fact that you're kind of calling out this theme of staying in your lane. You're kind of like, I knew what I was good at. I knew that, you know, these people were better at handling this or that, you know, investment bankers bring that skill set, which an operator doesn't. That theme of staying in your lane, I think is super important. You have to have a certain level of intellectual honesty and self-reflection to even get to that level. Uh, how did you come to that realization? Is it because you have a sort of I don't know, data-driven background, but how do you keep that intellectual honesty and kind of know when to stay in your lane versus branch out? That's a really interesting question. I think because of my experience and because of my failures, right, it kind of built out that resilience. And I did early on in my career try to be a jack of all trades or an ace at all trades. And I kind of quickly realized that it's actually easier when you've got a team. Right. And so having come to that realization earlier in my entrepreneurial career, it made it easier as an investor to see that you need a team, right? That people play different roles on that team. And, you know, my actual undergraduate degree is in health sciences, where I studied a lot of sociology of sport and things like that, thinking I actually wanted to be a physician and, and wanted to do something in sports science. Mm. And I think there's something about teams and team dynamics that I bring to this, right? It's kind of like understanding that you can be a utility player understanding that you could be, you know, kind of we, we you know, you're, you and I are both kind of Arsenal fans and, you know, kind of every player has a very different role, right? And you can see the qualities of a midfielder versus the qualities of a striker versus the qualities of a defender being very, very different. 
And I think that's kind of how I think about building companies and, and investing in companies is that it takes teams, right? Even the most prolific, the best performing entrepreneurs who've built ginormous companies did that with, with team players around them, right? So having kind of an expert who can help them on sales or having an expert around product or having an expert around user experience. And it's no different in venture. I think kind of understanding that actually certain investors are going to bring different talents to a company's life cycle. I think that's super, super important in terms of how companies grow and grow and scale over time. Yeah, I mean, the soccer analogy just warms my heart. So I'm not going to deep dive into that too much. But just on that, one of the reasons why I fell in love with soccer in the first place compared to any other sport was because you didn't have a handicap. You know, basketball, you had to be tall. Rugby, yeah. you had to be sort of buff to play. But soccer, as you're mentioning, there were different roles for different people. And ultimately, it was the cohesive units that won the most games. So I love that sort of insight into the fact that you need different skill sets to kind of get to a certain place. Um, something else that comes to mind is you know, the venture capital space, I hear a lot of entrepreneurs that have gripes with the industry. They say it's sort of closed off. It is for the Eton or Ox, Oxbridge or Stanford, whatever it is, class. Um, what are your thoughts about people that are, or at least entrepreneurs that view this space negatively because of the sort of elitism uh, within the space or perceived elitism? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I think you're not looking hard enough. Right. For for every kind of Stanford graduate, there's a, a Florida State graduate, right? There's a there's a Bill Gurley who I believe went to uh University of Texas, I believe, or or went to Florida, Florida, maybe Florida State, uh, for his engineering degree. So, you know, you've got some of the most prolific investors who don't come from that background, right? And I think there's that might have been the case when the industry was really forming. And I think you still see that as the case in certain pockets around Europe and certain pockets in the U.S. But when I think about how many new firms there are coming to market, how many new investors there are building funds, um, you know, before I left at Anthemis, I was leading our fund investing strategy, and we saw over 370 funds. And I, you know, would be more than happy to invest in, I would say, probably about 20 to 30 of those funds. And I think when you look at the individuals, they come from a very diverse network of degrees, of backgrounds, of experiences. You know, we backed um, a fund manager who was in the entertainment industry, who, you know, basically did an accounting degree in a state university in New York, and then built his career off of working with others and, and managing artists and found that actually he had a knack for early stage investing. And I think you can find a number of investors who fall into that kind of category in terms of having a non-traditional career. I think if you had talked to me maybe 10 years ago, I probably would have said, yeah, the Harvards, the Whartons, the Stanfords, the Cambridges, the INSEAD and LBSers maybe, you know, they've got a bit of a monopoly around kind of career paths. But I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we are seeing more and more diverse managers coming in. Now, it's not perfect. Those diverse managers do struggle sometimes to raise capital. You know, it's hard for LPs to get their heads around kind of the unique advantages that having a non-traditional career might actually offer. Um, but I do believe that LPs are warming up to it and looking for it. In fact, that's kind of the new strategy with what I'm building at LTV Capital is really to find and support you know, these diverse group of managers, because I do believe that these diverse groups, these people who are underrepresented, 
in the sector will be the ones who perform best over the longer period. If we think about vintages, if we think about uh, investing strategy, if we think about access to entrepreneurs, you know these these groups are going to bring a different skill set in terms of picking uh, great entrepreneurs. You know, if you think about the Airbnb founders as as an example, you know they were overlooked in a lot of cases, right? Yes, they had done the YC thing and whatever else, but they didn't have you know the the standard Stanford or whatever else. I believe the the founder CEO went to like the Rhode Island School of Design, right? So you know he came at it from a design perspective, and I think we're seeing some of that. Um, uh, emphasis on diverse backgrounds and founders carrying over into the venture space as well now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. My heart wants to say, yes, things are changing and, you know, there's alpha to be created amongst new managers. But my brain sort of tells me that ultimately it's the fund managers that appeal to the LPs likenesses or tastes that are still going to get funded. And I don't think those LP tastes have you know, necessarily changed over the last couple of years. They might hear of certain buzzwords like diversity or, you know, emerging markets or whatever it is. But ultimately, if they're going to part with their cash, they're likely to fall into the tropes of parting with cash to people that have similar experiences or that are investing in companies that they get, which might be, I don't know, yachts on, I don't know, you know, some some river somewhere or whatever it is. So, you know, I'm kind of torn- Yachts on a river, man. That's, that's, that's kind of showing- some some of the blinders they're talking. I mean, what I will say to that is I, I don't disagree, mm. right? I, but I think the thing is that it's changing, right? Mm. And if you think about entrepreneurs and if you think about, you know, the Zuckerbergs or the founders of Google or, you know, kind of all of those people who came from top tier universities, right? Zuckerberg was a dropout of Harvard. The, the Google guys were doing the PhDs at Stanford. You know, that's evolved, right? To the point where this latest cohort of exceptional founders have come from a more diverse um, background. And I think we're starting to see that in the venture space. And I do agree that LPs have been slow uh, to kind of get in on this trend, uh, but that's kind of why I'm going after the LP space now um, in what I'm going to build next at LTV Capital, right? The idea is to kind of work and work with managers from diverse backgrounds in order to kind of capitalize on what I think is some arbitrage that can happen in terms of founders, in terms of valuations, in terms of you know strategies for growth, in terms of customer segments as well. I think diverse managers over time will show that they can kind of build exceptional businesses and invest in great companies. You know, you're showing your true entrepreneurial spirit because you identified a gap in the market and a problem and you're going after it. You know, I can see you're talking about arbitrage, words like this. It's It shows the true entrepreneurial spirit that you have. Uh, kind of coming back to what you mentioned, you know, there are 370 new funds out there. You chose 15 to 20 that were worth your time even. I'm sure you're going to do the same thing here because LP capital is precious. Walk us through some of the mechanics of really filtering down those 370 to these 15. Why these 15 you know, what are some of the things that fund managers can do to position themselves to be amongst those 15 that get chosen? Yeah. And, and just to clarify, there were 15 or so that I would have invested in. Like, so, you know, had we kind of proceeded at Anthemis, I probably can say that there was 15 or 20 even funds that we were excited about. Mm. At the end of the day, we only invested in five. Right. Wow. And so I'll kind of like talk about the 15 or 20 and what separated them. Um, it was really, you know, we talked a little bit about backgrounds, but it was kind of their connectivity into an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Their networks. Uh, one of the groups we invested in was a group called F7, which was a group of women who were early employees at Facebook. 
They had been an angel syndicate for some time, and two of the women had decided to build a fund, and five of the other women were LPs in that fund, uh, alongside the great and the good um, of, of Facebook alumni. And, you know, that's just one example of a group that has a real distinct advantage that you can point to and you can validate and you can clarify in very simple terms, right? So I think looking at networks, looking at edges, looking at how they actually plug themselves into an ecosystem, because at the end of the day, you want investors who are going to back great founders. And at the same time, you want founders to be attracted to great managers. So what is it about these managers that's going to attract great founders? And so that's part of it, right? That network edge. The second thing I would say alongside that network edge is, you know, having some empathy towards that founder, right? So whether, you know, they were early stage founders or operators, as we've discussed earlier, or if they'd been investing for some time and actually worked with a number of companies. So to that earlier point in our conversation around, you know, that that differentiation between operators and people who come from, you know, more traditional, at least in Europe, venture backgrounds in terms of investment banking and other sectors. You know, what I like is, can you empathize with the founder, right? Have you built that muscle up in order to sit across the other side, be able to influence and be able to manage a founder? Because, you know, speaking as an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur myself, founders sometimes have crazy ideas, right? And some, some of them you want them to pursue, but others you want to be able to talk them out of. And I think that takes a lot of empathy and a lot of negotiation. Um, and so I'm looking for that in founders and managers um, as well. And then the last piece I'd say is there's a lot of fun dynamics, right? Are you going after um, uh, a broad thesis where I'm not sure exactly how you're gonna differentiate or do you have some clear differentiation? I also look at size and this is me kind of in particular, you know, the size of the fund means that you're more than likely to have a multiple on the return, right? Just the math of it, right? When I see, somebody raising a first-time fund of 200, 300 million dollars, you know, it kind of gives me a little bit of concern around, uh, are they going to be able to return that? In the same way that when I see, you know, a fund that's on fund five, six, or seven, also raising 300, 400, 500 million dollars, that also gives me a little bit of, uh, I'm not sure I want to play in that space because basically you have to cut much larger tickets, right? And you have to, to really kind of deploy that capital in a meaningful way in order to get that kind of return on these funds. Whereas in aggregate, if I can back a bunch of manage managers who are investing sub 100 million, right? The odds of them hitting one out of the park, having one, you know, not even a unicorn, but one that's a fund returner, right? From that sense, if, I feel a little bit more secure. So this is more of a personal idea of, of kind of looking at fund dynamics, looking at the size, looking at the sectors they're going after and seeing are these investors going to have a clear edge. So do you use a weighted sort of scoring for each of these? Because it seems like it's a very holistic approach to it, which makes the most sense, right? A venture fund has to do deal flow, uh, you know, portfolio construction, all these things. Do you score each of them or what's the methodology to make sure you're as objective as you potentially could be? A little bit. So we do have a process or we did have a process and, you know, I'm still kind of determining how much weighting I want to put to each of those in, in the new fund that I'm going to raise. So we're trying to kind of figure out like what's going to be the right chemistry, what's going to be the right algorithm on that front. We're looking at kind of some historic performance. We're trying to figure out where we should, you know, kind of over index, where we should under index and trying to kind of come up with the right strategy around it. I do believe that all of those factors will be, you know, determinant. So 
you might see a really small fund that doesn't have a great network or edge, but the founder's great, right? The, the manager's great. And so if I can see that actually, you know, we, we introduced myself where I joke half jokingly, given myself that title of chief value adder, yeah. right? The idea there is like, when there's a small fund, can I help that fund manager with some heavy lifting? Can I help them with distribution? Can I help them with customer acquisition? And what I mean by that is getting plugged into an ecosystem or the right ecosystem, getting the right deals coming across their table, right? That's much easier if somebody's raising a small fund or a first-time fund of 5, 10, or 20 million than it is if somebody's raising their second fund at 80 million or 100 million, right? So looking at the fund dynamics might be more of an indicator in some cases, but looking at the actual entrepreneurs who are building these funds, and I do consider you know, fund managers to be entrepreneurs in this case as well, right? So there's different dynamics. And I wouldn't say that I'm going to definitely index one over the others. Um, it's a little bit like adult entertainment. You kind of know it when you see it, <laughs> right? At the same time, I want to kind of be open to allowing some edge cases, to allowing some non-conformist managers to, to kind of fill uh, some of that allocation up. Uh, some of it will be LP dependent as well, right? You know, for example, I'm talking to a lot of LPs right now who want to see more in the climate space. So maybe there's an investor who doesn't meet, you know, or doesn't, you know, kind of knock me off my feet in terms of some of the other criteria, but has a really good edge and is really good on the climate side. Then some of those might kind of squeak through because I'm actually like, you know what, they're going to see a lot of deals in that space. So I, I'm still in that customer development phase of building out what LTV is going to be. But I do think there will be some methodology and all of those criteria are going to work in, in coordination with each other around which funds we, had, we end up backing. Yeah, it very much is a holistic approach and it's not sort of one lever that gets pulled that makes the decision for all. Uh, but you mentioned something earlier on about sort of that network effect and you, you're investing in fund managers that are able to attract the best founders, right? They kind of have an ecosystem or a network and value has accrued to things that can develop these great network effects. You think of, you know, social media, that's the result of networks and scalability, you know, things that have network effects. And so I wanted to ask from your perspective, how are you going to create that network effect um, in order to create value? Uh, as you rightly put, you're the chief value officer um, amongst your LPs and your founders, because it's not easy to create these networks and accrue value to your specific network. So how are, how are you thinking through that and how are you going to develop it on both the LP and I guess the emerging fund manager side? Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote a blog post on this where people can find it off of ltvcapital.co um, around networks and around kind of like leveraging networks and how early on in my career, you know, I hadn't really kind of thought through the value of a network, but I think around business school, and then post business school, when I went to Yahoo for a couple of years, and then post Yahoo, building startups and building relationships with venture investors, and then through Anthemis, you know, I've, I've my career really the last ten years, if not a little bit more of my career, has been focused on building up these networks. And now it's about leveraging these networks, right? It's like when I spent time early in my career as a mentor in Seed Camp in the very first iterations of Seedcamp. And for those who don't know, you know, Seedcamp is a great early stage community in Europe, um, you know, with, with great kind of companies like UiPath and others. You know, I was one of the first people to sit on both sides of that table, having gone through Seedcamp as a founder with my first company, but also having been a mentor in earlier days when I was building Ad Avengers and, and working at Yahoo. So 
you know, kind of like thinking about all of these networks that I've been able to to build out. Um, and it's part of the reason one of the other things or one of my side hustles is that I'm a lecturer at London Business School, right? And part of that is it's great, great for my ego. You know, I love kind of working with students and, you know, kind of building out curriculum. But at the same time, it's also increasing my network, right? It's giving me access to hundreds of students every year who go on to build great businesses or have built great businesses. It's giving me access to other future investors. Uh, one of my students is a principal at QED Ventures, uh, which is, you know, the founders of Capital One uh, have built a great firm um, in terms of looking at fintech. And I've seen a number of founders and a number of investors who've come through uh, my time at London Business School. And so, you know, all of these things are working towards extending my network so that, you know, yes, I might not have the Anthemis brand behind me, but the the different kind of nodes that I've put in, in terms of the last 15 or so years, have allowed me to kind of extend that network. And, you know, the, the fact is that one of the F7 managers was ex-Yahoo as, as well. So we had a lot in common, you know, just from sitting down with each other um, early days. And so you're always looking for what's going to give you that kind of connection to a founder, to a fund manager, or to an LP. So so building out my personal network has been something I've worked on for a while and and I'll hopefully leverage in this next act. Yeah. Well, I'm curious as to what your biggest fear is now that you're setting up LTV. Because, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around this. But what's your biggest fear going into this? Like, what are you nervous about? You know, having been a founder... I don't necessarily fear the failure as much, right? Uh, because I feel like I'm putting in better rails in terms of how I manage this. Um, I think the thing that scares me is the stuff I can't see and I can't control for. So the global macro environment, climate disasters, the war that's going on right now, and and whether or not we see a swift end to that, you know, all of these things that are really out of my control that's the stuff that that kind of scares me. I think you know I've I've seen a number of cycles. You know I'm I've got quite a few gray hairs in the beard and on the whatever's <laughs> left on, remaining on my head um, to know kind of what booms and busts look like and to know that great companies are started during a lot of bust cycles or down cycles. So that doesn't scare me as much. What scares me is that I can't remember a time where we've had so many different kind of crises with different momentum, different velocities kind of hitting us, right? Whether it's the climate side, whether it's the macro environment, whether it's, you know, kind of coming out of COVID and, and what happened from a capital perspective, all of the, the cheap money from a low interest rate environment to a high interest rate environment, you know, all of that kind of stuff, I have less control over. And that's the stuff that kind of like scares me. Um, and not just for myself, it scares me for, you know, the entire tech ecosystem, right? Anthem has had a number of companies that we thought were going to IPO, right? And I'm sure a lot of other investors felt the same way. And the pause on the IPO environment, I think, has been long enough. You know, I'm hopeful that we'll see a couple kind of try and test the waters this year. And I think that will kind of move us in the right direction. But that still leaves the, the situation in the Ukraine. That still leaves kind of the climate side of things as kind of giving us massive exposure uh, to stuff that we can't really control for as an ecosystem and as a, a, an industry. Yeah, I think Stripe is trying to IPO this year or something like that. So hopefully they'll be the first stalwarts to really try something and let's see if the IPO market opens up. Um, but, you know, you mentioned one fear that for me is, is actually top of mind, which is the macro environment. We've existed in a world where interest rates have been low by historic standards 
And, you know, we're, we're changing the dynamic there so drastically at the current moment. So for me, it's kind of like, what does that mean for companies that were pretty much zombified, were able to grow without having to be profitable and things of that nature? So that's kind of my biggest fear. And I kind of worry that we'll go into this three to five year potential spell where everything is just kind of slowed down. LPs aren't investing. The velocity of money isn't there in the economy. But like you put it, that's when the best companies are founded as well. They're a bit leaner, a bit more stealthy and things of that nature. So that's kind of my my biggest fear there. But who knows? We'll see how that, that works out. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, those with capital will deploy that capital if the right opportunity comes across their table. Mm. Right. So when you see a great founder in an exceptional space and, you know, it becomes a no brainer in terms of backing that founder, I think capital will be found. Right. And I think it's healthy, right. To kind of cut a little bit of the fat out of this industry. And they were just way, way too many people building funds, way too many people doing what I would call kind of tourism entrepreneurship, right. Where they were kind of like, uh, infatuated by the idea of being an entrepreneur or being a venture capital investor. I mean, the number of people I would talk to and say, why do you want to be a VC, right? Other than ego, right? There, A lot of people don't have a good reason. And I think, you know, there are way better ways to make money. And I think doing the hardship of trying to raise capital uh, will probably, you know, kind of pull the tide out on people who are, are doing it for, you know, ego purposes rather than actual fundamentally believing in their ability to build great businesses. Yeah, sorry about that. I was just uh, unmuting myself. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. In terms of the, I actually wrote a Medium article about this, the rise of the sort of celebrity investor, because it seems to be a fad right now. Everyone's in VC. It's cool to invest in companies, you know. Um, you see even Kim Kardashian raising 100 million private equity, you know. So it's like, whoa, what's happening here, right? And I think there's this phenomenon where social capital is becoming sort of financial capital. People are leveraging their brands and their exposure and their networks to create these uh, private equity firms, venture capital firms. And I don't know if that's symbolic of a bubble. It's just a mania, you know, and we need to weed out some of these things. Or there's just been a, a complete dynamic or, or shift in the way things operate. Mr. Beast has you know started his own venture firm. He's apparently worth billions of dollars and that's a YouTuber, right? But he has a different mode, a different way of operating. He's leveraging his social capital, you know? And so I, I wonder about that sometimes. I wonder if you have any thoughts on sort of this dynamic that's happening now and discerning between, is this a bubble? Are these just fads or is this a long-term trend happening? I think it's an indication of maturity in the industry, right? I mean, the thing you have to remember is that venture capital as an industry has, has is relatively young. Right. And so from a maturity perspective, you got to try lots of different things to kind of see what sticks. And, you know, when you think about Fred Wilson or you think about Mark Andreessen or you think about, um, you know, the PayPal mafia, as it was called, like these were celebrities in our space. Right. And the reason why they got into deals, the reason why they were able to help their companies grow and succeed was because of their relationships and because of their personal brands, if not their firm's brands. And I do think what we're seeing is some of that similarity in terms of, you know, some of these celebrities who are raising capital. Um, I think the best ones are the ones who have people around them, right? We go back to our team conversation, right? I think uh, a Kim Kardashian can really excel in terms of promoting a great company or a great product or a great brand. But I really hope she's got good people around her to help her identify what is a great company, what is a great brand, what is a great product, Right. Because we've seen that some of these kind of things end up, you know, let's take the crypto example of being rug pulls and other things, right? And so you have to be very careful 
of the companies you back, of the founders you work with. And I think a lot of these celebrity investors definitely have a role to play in this industry. And definitely some of them will be really successful, right? I mean, I think, you know, when I think about Nas and Queensbridge Partners, when I think about Jay-Z and Marcy Ventures, you know, when I think about what Serena Williams is doing, when I think about Kim Kardashian as well, I think these people have tremendous brands and what they've done over their career is surrounded themselves with good people. So I really hope they do the same thing when it comes to venture investing. If they surround themselves with good talent, if they surround themselves with great investors and people who understand you know, the dynamic of um, you know, how things grow. I think Jay-Z has a line in the last, uh, the last, con the last uh, track he did with DJ Khaled where he talks about you know, the cap table, right? And talking about which cap tables. And you know, that's gonna be something that you're gonna need a good analyst. You're gonna need some good associates. You're gonna need some good people who understand that dynamic because you know, as a founder, as, as an investor, I still want like people around me who can kind of do some of that grunt work, who can do some of that nitty gritty, you know, mucking through to kind of really understand where there are opportunities. So I think like even the best celebrities need good teams around them in order to succeed. Absolutely. Well, I'll be looking forward to Farhan's debut rap album coming out soon. I didn't know you're a hip hop fan. <laughs> <laughs> you're calling off these names like you've actually worked at some of these companies or you've invested with them. Um, no, but that's great. Honestly, you know, it's refreshing to hear such an honest perspective. I think there's a lot of opacity in this space. And when you hear someone talk about, you know, what it's really like to build a business and what it's really like to start a fund, I'm, I'm so interested to hear how your journey develops over time. And I'm sure our audience is too. We have LPs, founders, and emerging VCs in, in, that are going to listen to this episode. Um, as we're kind of getting to the end here, what what's a piece of advice or what's something you'd want the audience to know about? It could be um, what you're working on or just a piece of advice that they could have. But if you could put something out there or a message out there to the world, what would it be? Build your resilience. Um, it, it's, it's really hard sometimes to know whether things are happening are going to be good things for you or not great things for you. Um, but, you know, kind of having a muscle um, that kind of says, I'll get through this uh, is really, really important. At the same time, it's a great skill to have as an investor, as a founder, and just generally in life, right? So whatever you can do to kind of, whether it's meditation, whether it's, you know, kind of therapy, whether it's coaching, um, whether it's just building a really good kind of Fred network that you can talk to about this stuff, figuring out what's going to help you be resilient to get through stuff, um, I think is, is a skill that is a really hard thing to quantify but it's so necessary in life, not just in tech and tech investing. But I do think kind of like a lot of people haven't seen downturns, haven't seen downtimes, haven't seen failure, haven't seen companies go through administration, haven't seen redundancies or, or companies making massive layoffs. And I think like having that ability to be resilient is something that is underestimated, but uh, never ever is something that you will be uh, sad that you have later in life. Absolutely. I think that's a great message. In fact, it reminds me of one of my friends. Um, she's the founder of Flux in the UK. I don't know if you know of them, the receipts company. And they Anthony's just portfolio company. Oh, they are. They they just yes. closed down like last week or something, right? Yes. I mean, and she put a post up, you know, and I, I remember meeting her at I think it was the Silicon Milk Milk Roundabout or something like that, a recruiting event at Old Street. And you know, I remember her going with such passion and, you know, they really raised all this money and all that, the resilience, you know, I could see it in them. 
And after going through that for six years, at the end, they still had to shut it down. Imagine trying to pick up the pieces of six years of your life, 12 point something million dollars going, I don't want to say down the drain, but you know, it didn't create value, paying off employees and still kind of waking up the next day and going at a new opportunity or something like that. It's incredible what people actually have to go through until you think about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I hope that the founders of Flux and some of the employees uh, all find kind of success in whatever kind of they end up doing next. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time, Farhan. How can people reach you? Is it Twitter, LinkedIn? What's the best way for people to get in contact? LinkedIn's good. Uh, Twitter also. I'm just at Farhan Lalji on, on Twitter. I'm pretty good at responding there. Um, yeah, you can find me on all the social stuff. Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, even a TikTok if you look hard enough. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks. All right.